This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Moira Cullen about her innovative design work for some of the world's leading brands. It's an amazing time to be any kind of brand. I mean, just think of a business that's not being redefined in a way by their brands, right? And then you've got all sorts of new brands that are coming where design is just inseparable from the business. Here's Debbie Millman. There are Coke people, there are Pepsi people, and then there is Moira Cullen. She's currently the vice president of global beverage design at PepsiCo, but earlier in her career, she worked for the Coca-Cola Company, where she led the influential redesign of their visual identity system. Rest assured, no trade secrets were compromised. But Moira Cullen's illustrious career has not been limited to beverage companies. She's also worked for the Hershey Company, Hallmark, and Pentagram. On top of that, she's a design writer and educator, as well as a significant presence within AIGA, the Professional Association of Design. She joins me today at the School of Visual Arts in New York City to talk about her career in design. Moira Cullen, welcome to Design Matters. Welcome, Debbie. Glad to be here. So, Moira, I understand that you grew up in many different places. And here's just a short list. Nova Scotia, London, Florida, Illinois, Louisiana, and then finally, Northwest Ohio. Did you have a favorite place? Well, I think they were all, you know, because I had the family was growing. So there was a brother that showed up here in this city and then another brother in another city. And just popped up. Just <laughs> popped out. <laughs> right, exactly. So the family was growing. And then finally, we settled mostly in Northwest Ohio, which is where my mother still lives. And it's a beautiful place to grow up, but a great place to grow from. And so I left as soon as I could. Now, your father was a doctor. Right. What made you decide to go into design? Well, I didn't know I was going to go into design, actually. I started out as a dancer. You know, I just a very shy little girl. I don't know if that's a consequence of a lot of the moving around, but I was very much, had a very rich internal life, but was very afraid of other people. And the little fears that I had, it was funny because I was always then off going into my own little hideaways. Or even when I was very young, I remember telling my mother, they said I ran away, but I didn't really run away. I just went to the store and I was about three years old. And three. And we were living in Evanston. And apparently I had crossed this really busy road. I don't remember that part, but I went to the little grocery store and I remember being drawn to these blue cans of dog food. <laughs> and we didn't have a dog, but I think my grandmother had a dog living elsewhere. And so I just remember gathering these cans of dog food. So I was always going off. And uh, I think that's been a pattern in my life of venturing forth into somewhat scary places in spite of my fears and started young. <laughs> I find it so interesting that you recall the color yes, of know. the cans. I do, very vividly. More so than even what kind of dog was on no, the There package. was no dog. Yeah, there, wow. <laughs> there was a dog, but it was really color. And, and I think also just it was this quest for something there, but it was interesting, yeah. Now that you're an adult, 
you could probably look back and see a history of being fascinated by packaging and brands. Do you remember when that really became something conscious in your life and in your aspirations? Not really. I mean, as I said, as a dancer first, I mean, I was it was a kind of a form of communication and it was about space and form and composition and storytelling and a way to connect with others from a distance. And then later, I think design in a similar way, I think design is really, it is really my way of connecting with the world. And but it's still at a distance yes, in a way. in a way. And which I think that's the skill of a designer as well, that observational ability to stand apart and observe, but still be empathetic, and then really create from that space. When did you stop dancing? Actually, I, I had an accident. I broke my leg and I could have continued. But at the time I felt, you know, this is probably a good time to transition. So I moved west and did a little entrepreneurial stint with a gourmet deli, which was really designing a space and signing and a whole atmosphere. How which old were led, you at this point? I was about in my early, mid-20s, early 20s. Oh, so you had already finished yeah, college yeah, at that yeah. point. You went to Middlebury. What did you study there? Well, I didn't stay very long either. So I just went and studied. I was studying language and English, and I didn't stay very long, and I went back to dance. I also studied English. I now joke that I got a degree in reading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're now currently a design strategist. You're also right. a writer. You're an educator. And you've built this really extraordinary career working with some of the world's biggest corporations, mm. institutions, and brands. You've directed their redesigns in a way that really honors, celebrates, in many ways uncovers the essence and heritage of who those brands are, mm. what the souls of those brands mm. are, in a way that's really unprecedented in our industry. So let's start first with your move from Idaho, I guess, mm. where you were working mm -hmm. in this little deli, to your job in Japan working for Taka-Q. Most of my opportunities and roles have been new roles. I think about it now, almost so many of the positions I've had were kind of newly created positions. So that was one. I was actually their only American employee. Did you so speak? Was, do you speak Japanese? I was based in New York, and I was in Japan a lot. And over the course of the time I was there, I learned Japanese to the point where I could speak. I don't use it a lot now, obviously. and But it was a really interesting exposure to that culture. And obviously to fashion, to design, to branding. I mean, it was a really interesting inside learning in that role that I had. And then that led to the job at Pentagram. How did you meet Colin Forbes, one of the founders um, of yes, Pentagram? Yes, yes. So I met him through a common kind of connection. And he you know, was one of the partners who was really very much into brand and brand systems, as well as just the system of managing design in general and a master at that. So two geeky fangirl kind of yeah, questions exactly. coming out of this. Number one is, what was your favorite project working at Pentagram? And what was the biggest thing you learned from Colin Forbes? I think the power of the client relationship and mm. the power of the strategic thinking that then ultimately supported the creative. You know, there's many ways to approach design. 
but I think he was a big believer in the strategic framework, which is pretty radical. Which is for pretty the radical, early nineties, exactly. Yeah, and so I think that was not always appreciated or understood, and it's still not always appreciated exactly. or understood. Thirty years later, exactly. So there were some great projects, but there was no one favorite. But they were really good foundational work. Moira, in doing my research on you in preparation for the show, I had a a sort of startling realization, which is I'm really jealous of your career. You have worked at some of my favorite (laughs) companies in the entire world, Pentagram, AIGA, Mm. and then, of course, all the corporate clients and Pushpin. So I saw Paula share last week. We were talking a bit about you in preparation for the show. And she said, oh, before she went to AIGA, she actually worked for Seymour. I I (laughs) referred her to Seymour Quast, my husband at Pushpin. So what was that like? That was really interesting. I remember we put together this great book. It was a kind of a capabilities book. and It was all done around phrases. It was called A Stitch in Time, and we used all these cliché. It was about taking cliché and using cliché to illustrate all the different aspects of a growing design business. So it was really interesting to kind of help him think through his business. And again, a master, you know, a master. So it was great. Yeah. So after Pushpin, you were the director of programs at AIGA, which at the time you were there from 94 to 96. And you've had a long and illustrious relationship with AIGA. But I don't think most people realize that you were both the AIGA president of the Kansas City chapter and on the AIGA national board at the same time. It just so happens that you were also working on the redesign of Coca-Cola at that time. How were you managing all of these different disparate roles? Yeah, well, I think that was just the one time where they were all together. But I mean, AIGA is such an amazing organization. And I think it truly gave me a learning experience with a lot of the leadership things that I later was growing into. For example? You know, taking a competition, creating thematic competitions that became exhibits, that became written about in the annuals and whatnot, that you really multi-platformed an initiative that just had been a competition. So there was all of that work, but then later becoming, you know, active in chapter leadership, creating major events and activities and public speaking and all of that. I think AIJ has been so helpful as a framework for growing leadership. What made you decide to go into more of an education role? You became the chair of communication arts at Otis College of Art and Design, and you were there quite some time and really helped create that whole program. Yeah. Lori Haycock-Makala recommended me to the committee. So I went and met with them, and the opportunity was really, I mean, it's an amazing school, and this was a time when they were really looking at well, what is education for 21st century design? And what did you think at that time it was? Well, I think, you know, my view on that was really the importance of visual storytelling and the importance of design thinking. And this is all before the sort of launch of visual storytelling oh, and yeah, design thinking yeah. as as their own brands. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it was really a very interesting time to create an environment for students to really think deeply about design. I think you realize at that age, you know, people are led to different places for different reasons and really understanding what even design was. I think some students were there because 
they really were artists, but their parents said, no, design, you will make money, whereas an artist, you won't. So, you know, and, how do you, how, and then how do we really realize, too, that design was changing? Obviously, you know, that was in the mid-90s to 2000 when I left. So think about all the things that were not even invented then that are daily habits for people today in terms of design. So I think it was a really amazing experience to be there. Two things happened in your life in the mid-90s that I'm aware of that are really significant. One, obviously, going to chair the design department at Otis. But the other was an interview that you did with Tibor Kelman, which I, I discovered in my research. In 1996, you interviewed Tibor Kelman, the founder of the legendary groundbreaking firm, Emin Company, mm. and you interviewed him for iMagazine. Nobody knew it then, but this was three years before he would eventually die right. of cancer. What was it like interviewing him then? This was really at the height of his career. Oh, I know. I know. It was amazing. The peak of his life. Yeah. And he had just come back from the Benetton, from the colors thing. Right. You know, he was incredible. He was funny. He was biting and sharp. And, you know, he had very strong and wonderful opinions. And it was just a pleasure to have that conversation with him. Yeah, you start the interview absolutely perfectly as an interviewer. I read the interview. It was like spot on. You just start the interview. Okay, you're back. (laughs) And you continue the interview by stating, we spoke just weeks before your departure for Rome in the summer of 1993 Mm. when the economy was soft, nerves were raw, diatribes about legibility and relevance were being hurled across design's generational divide and the prospect of a changing of the guard prevailed. You were deeply dissatisfied with design. How was he feeling about design when he came back? Do you have a a recollection? Yeah, I think he was still really cynical about the purpose because at that time, and you're bringing it all back with those words, there was really a changing of the guard. Remember, there was the dinosaurs that were these legends. (laughs) To him, that was so irrelevant in terms of design's real purpose. And he... He really believed design has a purpose and that it could help change society and in very positive ways and that some of that back and forth was just so petty and irrelevant and and so I think he came back with with just similar ideas. He was an amazing force. At one point in the interview, he says to you, now I'm at a point where I find I'm tired of talking about what kind of accents to use. I want to talk about the words that are being said. And then you respond, to whom? Is the audience as important as the message? Mm. And I want to know what you think. Is the audience as important as the message? I think the audience is very important. And I think you need to know who that audience is and... You don't have to agree with them, but you have to respect them. Because again, thinking about all of the corporate work, I mean, that's a huge audience, those internal audiences of within companies. And in many cases, their ears are tuned to different wavelengths, it seems. And they're hearing things we don't hear and vice versa. And so how do we understand that audience and find a way to speak really to them and have that conversation. So I do think the audience is important. 
Well, let's talk a little bit more about that in relation to some of the work that you've Mm. been doing. In 2000, you began working with some of the biggest brands on the planet, Hallmark being the first, where you became the corporate design manager and creative development strategist, and then on to Coca-Cola, and then Hershey's, and now Pepsi. And I want to talk about all Mm. of them. So at Hallmark, you stated that design plays an essential role in creating and building brands. Design differentiates and embodies the intangibles, emotion, context, and essence that matters most to consumers. So how did you take that idea of the central role design needs to play and apply that to the redesign of a company that was created in the early 1900s. It's still a privately held company. Mm -hmm. It was started by two brothers and their sister, who gets very little credit, Joyce Hall. (laughs) How were you able to lead this change, bringing this organization into the future, using design to play that Mm -hmm. essential role? Hallmark was a perfect first corporate experience because it was very much that and I could learn a lot through that, which later I see how it prepared me just, I mean, just in terms of corporate protocols and how companies work and forget about a creative part or design aspect. It's just the business of being a big business was so new to me. And then I think just the realization more and more that indeed designers see things differently. And we know now and many of us knew then as well that that's that's a positive and that's a very a plus and marrying that with the very rational literal linear process of most corporate thinkers is actually a very powerful combination but it's completely foreign to the corporate world and if you're not prepared it's completely foreign to the creative world so that was the process that I went through and you know I had great partners and we were able to really influence larger audiences within the company and show them and explain you know what is literally what is a brand through a designer's eyes and which is it is the functional but it is also the emotional and the social you know how it works what it does what it stands for but how it makes me feel and how it makes me seem and appear to others. You know, what's that social component as well? So all those utilities are really important. Talk about the redrawing of the classic Hallmark script logo. Yeah. So there was work that had gone on before I got there. Actually, the first week they had an orientation and near the end of that week, they proudly showed off with, here's our new Hallmark identity. And I literally had this queasy roll inside of like, oh my goodness, where have I come? Because in an attempt to be more modern, I think there was some the really overextended kind of interpretation of what Hallmark should look like. It didn't feel right. I think, you know, if we were trying to think about what was the tenor of the time and trying to be a brand that was contemporary but had a legacy past, so we needed to be real and true to who we were and really say there's a way forward in our future if we really honor what was really kind of there in the past. And so we just kind of cleaned it up a little bit and then created a simpler color story, but also a system and then a mindset around what the brand could be. And then you got the call. And then I got the call from Coca-Cola. Another hundred plus year old company. Yes. 
So you worked for Pio. Um, yes. He appointed you to deliver against this brand idea that Coke brings joy. That was the sort of... Yeah, that had been started. He had was working with Wyden and Kennedy, and they'd started some transformational work with advertising agencies. So Wyden and Kennedy had come up with this idea of happiness inside and um, an advertising campaign that where all of the kind of exuberance was coming out of the bottle, if you remember graphically, yes. right? But it was a campaign. It wasn't an identity. And we desperately needed an identity for Coca-Cola, which is what I was tasked for immediately when I got in. And I was head of design for North America, which is the leading market for Coke. So there had been had been some global work done, but that had tested very poorly in North America. So they, they really needed something. So I was told I had to do that. Who was I going to work with? Get on it and so on. So that was my initial task. <laughs> the design goal was to make Coke feel happy, fresh, and honest again, as well as what you've described as bringing forward what was true about the brand. What were the truest things about the brand that you wanted to sort of re-reveal? At the time, Coke wasn't seen as the design leader that it came to be. It had lost its way. It had become more commoditized. Even the red of Coke had been just diluted. So really peeling it back, kind of going back, much like I did with Hallmark, as you go back to the essence of what the brand is and the happiness inside. So the brand essence work was being done simultaneously. And this notion that happiness inside was what Coca-Cola was about. And so how could these small moments of happiness, these small little wink and a smile, and appearing not to be this huge gargantuan company, but something more personal and just the simplicity, the authentic simplicity of the brand. But we worked through all these issues. And I think the internal piece of selling that work in, you know, the simplicity of it, I was really concerned and interested at the time of, of this notion of 21st century refreshment and how, you know, all the codes and cues of refreshment that had been become conventions in the category, you know, that the sweating cans, the melting ice, the exaggerated cues, those were there. What was the next generation of refreshment? And we see all the transformative things that were happening in other industries. Music was being transformed, so on. What was the next way that refreshment could be exhibited, you know, and did it always mean a literal thing? And we know that it doesn't have to be literal, but... Well, we know again, now. We know now. But that was a big that risk. That was a big move and a big risk. So it's really remarkable, having worked with some of the world's largest companies, it is virtually unheard of, if not completely unheard of, to have a redesign go to market with either questionable or parody market research results. You really need statistical significance in order to make as significant a change as you did. On an average day, 1.2 billion people around the world consume mm. a Coca-Cola product. 1.2 billion. It's the best known brand in the history of the world. <laughs> so you were able to convince this company to change their identity and their packaging based on questionable results by the way in which you were able to show them strategically how the market research was actually supporting their initiatives and their intentions. I mean, there were a whole bunch of parts of the argument. But yeah, it was helping them see a different way in the data. And also it was about saying, Coca-Cola is a leader. So 
the confidence of a leader and showing other leader brands that have confidence. There's a simplicity in the confidence in the simplicity, right? And it's not just simple for simple sake, but it's simple as a result of a process of disassembling a lot of complexity. So simplicity is the end point, not the beginning point. And I think it has a legacy, but it is very much relevant in today's world. So Yes, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> and the world noticed. You, yeah. you garnered numerous awards, including the first ever Grand Prix for design and Golden Lion for packaging at Cannes. Yep. And then everybody in the world started to notice that packaging could indeed make a difference. And not surprisingly, you were stolen away by the Hershey Company to come and revitalize some of their most beloved and oldest brands, the Hershey Bar, Kisses, what was it like moving from Atlanta to Hershey, Pennsylvania to work on some of these big, beloved brands yeah. in real need of reinvigoration? <laughs> well, again, each of these, they're kind of love affairs, each one. You know, I mean, these companies are, they're big and they're complicated, but there's deep, interesting stories. So I dove into this other world of confection, which had all new acronyms and <laughs> new different, you know, instead of refreshment cues, it was appetite appeal, but it was the same thing. You know, how do you kind of exaggerate and amplify desirability? And there wasn't a lot of attention to detail. And I think people appreciate detail. You'll hear it in focus groups all the time about, they won't talk about it in design terms, but they'll say about, oh, that design, they must have had a bad day, that designer. Well, why is that? Well, it looks like they just didn't care <laughs> with the packaging. You think, wow, really? So what is it that conveys a sense of caring? And usually it is it is a kind of attention to detail. Now, they're not going to talk about the kerning of typography or things like that, but they can feel a sense that something, it's mattered and somebody's been spent some time on something. So that's what we kind of did brand by brand. And they were globalizing the brands at the same time, which is also a really fascinating thing. And that was one of the key accomplishments at Hershey. So we have a Hershey bar that looks the same virtually in every country. And that was considered impossible. There were countries that would swear that that would never work. And over the course of time and conversation, it became real. And it's actually doing very, very well. So again, the power of design to really transform people's belief. I want to share with you something I've been realizing lately, which is I think the only people that really like and appreciate brand design changes are brand designers. And having worked on some of the world's leading brands, how do you counter the notion that Brands obviously need to evolve in some way. They need right. to have some modernity inserted into them from time to time. Yet consumers seem to be so reluctant to accept those changes. You're right. Sometimes consumers may never notice the change. But I always remember this anecdote because it's so rich that a consumer wrote in how good she feels because she can stack the boxes in her pantry of the new design and what a great sense of feeling it gave her to see all the boxes in a beautiful order in her cupboard. Well, first of all, there's no research question that would really ever get to that. But you think of that small moment. Now, that's one person. But there's another value that design delivered to that consumer. You know, just all of those other levels of design that people don't really think about and may not even consider design, I think are really important. 
Moira, you've now moved on to become the vice president of global beverage design at the Pepsi-Cola company at PepsiCo. You are now officially one of the most senior women running corporate design in the world. Congratulations. Thank it's you. really, really amazing. When I started in the branding business many, many, many years ago, there were no women in this type of position. So thanks for breaking that ceiling for us. Tell us about what your plans are, what you're doing. I know that you recently redesigned Brand Pepsi which I'm beginning to see, mm. um, and you'll have quite a lot of other brands under your purview. Tell us what your plans are. Well, it's a great experience. And again, I was brought in by Mara Puccini, and it's an amazing time to be any kind of brand. I mean, just think of a business that's not being redefined in a way, right? With, by their brands. By their brands, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got all sorts of new brands that are coming where design is just inseparable from the business. So this is the time. (laughs) This is a really interesting time. So there are many plans within this year. So yes, so it's Pepsi. So there's a big, bold blue identity that's been launched globally. So for the first time, Pepsi is in the same identity globally. We've also done Sierra Mist. We've done 7-Up. We've just launched also True, which is a new sugar stevia sweetened cola and a craft cola, Caleb's. So there's an amazing range of products and brands that we've worked on and actually helped create within just a little over a year. Moira, my last question is about a presentation that I read about that you made recently on the balance between creativity and marketability in a commercial world where you talked about the unique approaches women take when solving for critical business challenges and how often they parallel those of artists. So I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about that. I don't know that there's a distinct difference between a woman's approach to this. I do know, and this is a practicing theory that I've developed over time, and that is this notion of soft power. Here I am, I described this little not necessarily outgoing initially person in these big companies and having to be a leader and having to lead and knowing that, okay, you can have a great design strategy, a great approach, a great idea. But if I don't have the ability to articulate that, to speak up and defend it, I'm not doing that design justice. And that's ineffective. So as much as I've had these opportunities, I could be equally ineffective in those roles, unless I was able to overcome some of my personal insecurities and so on. So then the metaphor of business is war. I dove into that idea. So if business is war, what is design's role in that? And how can you use the power of design? And if I'm the general, the brand general, and I think design is just decorating my uniform, you know, when the bombs are going off, I'm not going to think there's a lot of value in what you're presenting to me. So how can I approach the generals in a way within the war metaphor that makes design a viable part of their arsenal? So you think about sticks and carrots, and, you know, and then also soft power, which Joseph Nye coined the term about 10 years ago, which is really the power of attraction. It's not about command and control, but it's about drawing people 
and and actually setting the agenda, reframing the agenda. And so it's not just that design is attractive. It can be that for sure. But it really is about attracting people to a different way, not trying to rationally persuade them or force them to do something. So that's what I've been using in many of these examples is finding a way to draw people to the power of what it is that my team and I are doing or can do for them. And so the ability of design to play on more of the intangibles and the emotional, the empathetic, the kind of intrinsic properties is a very powerful piece in in a go-to-market strategy. It's been a very interesting way for me, I think, to, as a woman, it, it isn't exclude anything about gender, but I think it was, it's a way for me to learn how to be more successful. And it's not just applicable for brand consultants or brand designers trying to ensure that their design is something that can be bought by the senior executives. It's also about how a design student can put together a portfolio that's going to get them a job. Absolutely. Because I think that the single most important skill that any designer needs to be able to master, aside from design itself, is the ability to explain with passion what that design means. Absolutely. For themselves and the world. No, it's critical. It's critical. It is a the different kind of storytelling, and it's equally important. And you are proof positive that that is not only possible, but necessary. Moira, thank you so much for joining me on Design thank you, Matters. Debbie. Thank, and thank you. you for a pleasure. helping to make supermarkets more beautiful all over the world. Moira Cullen is currently the Vice President of Global Beverage Design at the Pepsi-Cola Company. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.